Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Now, we know this is a prophetic chapter in which Jesus prophesies events that he describes here. And this description will take us right the way up until the second coming of Jesus. My topic today is Jesus Christ coming king. We could always say soon coming king. It completes my series on the four square gospel, Jesus Christ, Savior, Healer, Baptizer in the Holy Spirit, and soon coming king. Now, I'm going to open up the topic, give you the foundational stuff, and create for myself a task for the future, which is to come back and expound more fully on many of the questions that people ask concerning the second coming. What are the, when is he going to come back? What are the signs? Are there signs? What did this passage mean? What does that passage mean? We're not going to solve those problems today, but I'm going to give you a framework to focus on the most important things. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back soon, and he's coming back to do something in a very specific way. So let's read, and I'll skip through the chapter a little bit. And at this particular point, I want you to listen carefully to the question, or should I say questions, that Jesus is asked by his disciples. Okay, Uh, Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Devastating news. Jesus predicts the total destruction of the Jewish temple. That place which was at the heart of the old covenant, the heart of the worship life of the people. God says, I'm going to destroy it all. Shocking. Shocking. What the disciples took pride in, Jesus said, it's over. Game over. So no wonder they had questions. Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, now, here's the question, or questions. How many questions do you count? Let's let's have a look. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? It's possible to see three questions there. When you read further, Jesus answers the first question, when is the destruction going to take place? And he says, verse 3, verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Have you heard people say, well, look at all the earthquakes today, the wars, rumors of wars, Jesus is coming soon. Well, Jesus is coming soon, but all this has been fulfilled already. Let's go on. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning. 
They're not the signs of the end, they're the signs of the beginning, the beginning of birth pains. Okay, then it goes on. Now then, over the page, verse 29, and in my mind, he's now answering the second question, what's the sign of his coming? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. This is not literal. You read the fall of Babylon, it was all stuff that is reflected by shifts in the cosmic realm. In other words, this is a cataclysmic heavenly event that has earth-shattering consequences, the fall of kingdoms. And Jesus now is prophesying not just the fall of Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple, but the entire fall of the Israel nation of the day. And AD 135, it happened. Jews were forbidden from even going to Jerusalem. It was a total judgment upon the house of Israel prophesied here. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes will mourn. They will see the Son coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, one from each end of heaven to the other. What this is talking about is that it's the age of the gospel. When God judged Israel, it was not final upon them. They are still included in the promises of God. But it is now the season of the Gentiles where the gospel goes out throughout the whole of the world. And so all of these things have already been fulfilled. And it says nothing about the second coming until... Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. What would be like in those days prior to the coming of Jesus? For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking not wicked, normal. Marrying, giving in marriage, not wicked, normal. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 44, therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming, second coming, at an hour you do not expect. Okay, I'm not going to expound all of that. As I said, I'm going to stick to the essentials today, but I'll refer back to some of that so you can see where I'm coming from. I want to ask you a question today. What is your hope? What is your confident, positive expectation about the future. When we look deeply into this, many people might have some plans. Some might even be praying today, Lord Jesus, come today. I don't want to have to sit my final exams. Come quickly. <laughs> some might be saying, don't come now, Lord. I want to get married first. <laughs> I'm not talking about those kind of hopes. I'm talking about the thing that is solid and sets the context for the whole of your life and is 
in line with the ultimate reality, the nature of things, this theistic universe that God created and is so organized as it is working towards the climax of everything when Christ returns. What's your hope? I put it to you that there is a universal cultural loss of hope today. Very little hope around, not, not saying that they're just, just because they don't believe that Jesus is coming back, but they don't even believe in a universe or a world in which such a thing is possible. They don't understand it. And with this massive cultural loss of hope has come a lot of very difficult things and painful things, including increased in depression and suicide, I speak very sensitively, but it's important that we highlight the issues of mental health, but at the end of the day, where there is no hope, there can be no life. Do you know that suicide among certain sections of the population is today the most regular cause of death? Higher than road traffic accidents, the incidence among certain groups of the population is even higher than any medical condition or terminal illness. Suicide. A loss of hope. I'm not saying that if you believe that Jesus is coming back, you'll never get depressed. In our own fellowship, we feel the pain of those who are suicidal, depressive, and have even succeeded in taking their own life. But I'm saying the loss of hope today is linked to the fact that our culture doesn't accept that we live in a universe where Christ exists, where he's already visited this planet the first time, he's died on the cross, rose again from the dead, is ruling and reigning from heaven now, and one day soon is going to come back in victory to this planet. We don't believe in, even in that framework. I read uh, some psychological research recently which analyzed the attitudes, particularly in young people, that show that they are pre-suicidal. You've got to get this, friends. I can't believe that in a church like this, where every single one of us is connected in small groups, that we just do nothing, everything else, other than really discover what people are really thinking and feeling inside. It's a mission. Don't be superficial. And what shocked me, and I shared it with Amanda, who has background in psychotherapy and everything, I shared it with her. And here's the thing. It's not just that people speak negatively about their future. Get me on a bad day, which is very often. <laughs> you, you will find me speaking negatively about the future. I know I shouldn't, but the fact is there are, we have to face difficulties. But it's not that somebody is talking constantly negatively about the future. It's that they have no positive hope for the future. They are hopeless without hope. And it's into this background of hopelessness that I want to trumpet today our blessed hope. The hope to end all hopes, the hope to fulfill all hopes, the hope that Jesus Christ is coming back to this planet and is coming soon. 
Can I have a strong amen in the house of God? Titus 2.13, the whole of our existence between now and when Jesus returns is a life of pregnant faith and expectancy waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing, the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we fix our eyes on. Everything else that we do, marrying, getting married, doing exams, earning a living, getting our mortgage, all of that is total irrelevance unless it is set in the context of that event which is going to take place where heaven's opened and not only will we have a taste of heaven, we'll have heaven coming down in the person of Jesus Christ to claim what is rightfully his. Several questions this morning throughout CFR I get. Number one, why is Jesus coming again? What, what's, what's it all about? What's, what's, why is it necessary? Well, we know that when Jesus came the first time, he came to establish his kingdom, to inaugurate it. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Time and time again, he said, the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is. I'm in the midst. The king is here. The kingdom has come. And we must never forget that right now we are living in the kingdom. God has taken over this planet. Yes, he has. He's ruling now from heaven. He's ruling now. But when he comes the second time, he's going to come not to inaugurate it, but to consummate it, to bring it to full manifestation, to bring it to fullness. So Jesus must come again at the restoration of all things in order to manifestly rule in a way that is open and unambiguous. For now, we only see this by faith. The first coming, Jesus came in secret. The second coming, he'll come openly. The first coming, he came in veiled form. These were days of Jesus' humiliation on earth. But the second time, he's coming in unambiguous, glorious form. He's coming back, friends, not in order to conquer the earth. He will come back having conquered the earth. We have a victorious view of this. He's not coming back in order to be made king. He is coming back as one who already reigns and one under whose feet his enemies have been placed. He'll come back fully to manifest his conquest of the nations. He'll come back to deal with the very last enemy. The last enemy is death. The first enemy is sin. And the, 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 the sting of death is sin. He's removed the sting, but then he's coming back to destroy death itself. We will be looking for the resurrected life when he returns. He's coming back to judge the nations and the individuals of the earth. He is coming back to remove the wicked. And this is good news, friends. He's coming back to right the wrongs of our existence. He's coming back to deal with the evil and injustice of the world. 
He's coming back to put an end to suffering. He's coming back to manifest his eternal reign of righteousness on the earth. Heaven is coming down to earth. Well, if it's that good news, why doesn't he come now? Come quickly, immediately, if, it's, if that's so good. Well, got to understand this. There is a reason why there is an apparent delay, and the reason is love. The first coming, Jesus conquered sin and opened the opportunity for people freely to choose his kingdom, to have their sins forgiven, truly and freely to bow the knee to Christ as king and voluntarily accept the kingdom open to their lives. Free will, opportunity. When Jesus comes again, it'll be too late to believe because faith will be redundant. You see, now we don't see him and we believe. When we see him, we say, I believe now. That's not faith. Faith is not believing what you see. Faith is believing what you don't see rests on good evidence. So as soon as it becomes open and tangible, it's too late to believe. In other words, the state of your faith at the coming of Christ, it's it. Done deal. Too late to switch sides. Oh, I believe in you now. Now I see you. No, 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 no. Too late. So in other words, when he comes back, the free will element will be removed. People will no longer freely be able to choose him on the basis of faith. They will simply have to submit him on the basis to him on the basis of who he is. When he comes, every knee shall bow. Those who love him and those who have rejected him, they will bow. They will know him. They will see him for who he is, but it'll be too late. So as long as he delays, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but this is very impressed on me. If he delays his coming to the end of this sermon, you have a chance and an opportunity now to get right with him. Today, you can still choose to accept him. Today, you can still choose to believe on him. Today, you can still choose to surrender to the rule of God in your life. But when he comes again, too late, your decision will stand. So we want Jesus to come back. We want to be free from sin and pain and sorrow. And we want, we want justice. We want good to prevail. We want evil people to be judged. We want evil to be sorted out. Yes, we do. But somehow we share the heart of a compassionate God. And we say, God, thank you that today we have an opportunity to put that right in our life. Today we have an opportunity to invest in your kingdom. Thank you for today. That's why he's coming back. Now we're going to look at how he's coming back, the manner of his return. Very basic stuff, but I want to nail this as as apostolically firmly as I can, that you will be fixed in your mind. He is coming back personally. That's how he's coming back. Do you know that we live in the era of the absent Christ? It's not the whole truth, but I'm coming to the whole truth in a moment. You know that Jesus is not here. 
He's in heaven. How many people dispute that? He was resurrected from the dead, exalted at the Father's right hand, and is waiting in heaven, but he will come back. At the moment, we are living in the era of the absent Lord. His physical presence isn't with us. Of course, he's with us by his spirit. When he comes back, it won't just be a spiritual coming. It'll be a physical, actual, personal coming. That'll be the difference. Acts 1.11 Jesus has just left them. Remember the story, resurrected, stayed around for 40 days, and then he was taken up into heaven. And they're standing there watching, gawking into the heavens. Can you see him? You know, he's gone. What's happening? And two angels come and say to them, Acts 1 verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven This Jesus, this very same Jesus will come back in the same way you saw him go to heaven. It's a real coming, personal coming of Jesus. When he comes, he will be visible, visible. It'll be open and visible, public and glorious. First coming, it was public to the extent that it actually happened, People witnessed it. Some were alerted to it. The shepherds, the wise men, the family, they were there. But it was not immediately apparent to the whole of society, to the whole of the world, that Messiah had come. So therefore, it was relatively secret and hidden. There was a reason for that, because he was preparing the way for us to come to know him by faith. But his second coming will not be like that. It will be open, obvious, visible, and glorious. Every eye will see him, and everyone will recognize him. They will know him when they see him. I can't digress a bit, but I'm bursting to let you know of some of the things that I've discovered in sharing with the refugees in in 1.8 million people. I didn't speak to them all, of course. 1.8 million there in Germany are coming to Christ. and, And so many of them said, a man came to me in my dreams. Who was he? Jesus. How do you know? I don't know. One man said, I'm never going to be you. You're going to invade my dreams. Go away. High up. High up in Islam. And so he said to Jesus in the dream, I don't believe you are who you say you are unless I see you personally. One day he's reading his material and there comes Jesus. Don't ask me to explain it. Ah, okay, so you think you're Jesus. I won't believe until. And Jesus lifted his hands and out of the nail prints in his hands, light streamed into the room. He went through his whole house Throughout everything related to his former belief, kept one book only, the Bible. And now he's turning, he's turning people around. But that's not the second coming. That is a vision, an appearance, but it's not the second coming. When Jesus came first time, it was secret. But it says that he is coming with the clouds of heaven. One, Revelation 1.7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. 
So he's coming personally, visibly. And here's a very important point. He is coming victoriously. He's coming as one who has already conquered. Mm-hmm. See, back in the day, when we were beginning with this 100 years ago, not that I was here, contrary to popular opinion, I was not around, but, but they, they were talking about the coming of Jesus as being very, very future. So we are looking forward to the one who will come and become king. And over the years, you've studied our Bibles a bit more and realized that he won't be coming in order to establish a kingdom that never existed before, but to bring the existing kingdom to fullness. And here's how it's going to happen. He must reign until his enemies become the footstool of his feet. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most frequently quoted psalm from the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament writings. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until. In other words, you stay there until this happens. You're not going to move. You're not going to leave that throne and go back to the earth until this happens. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's what's happening now. As Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven bit by bit, person by person, family by family, nation by nation, it is turning back to God. This is going to work. Jesus is not going to fail in his mission to redeem the world. Not saying everybody's going to be saved, but then it goes to say, verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's what he's doing now. He's ruling in the midst of the enemies, but when he returns, he's going to deal and dis- with and destroy those enemies. Doesn't mean to say everybody's going to come to Christ, but his gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, is going to take over this world. It's already happening. There are more believers in Christ today than any other time in history, and it is growing. It is advancing. Don't believe the news statistics. They only focus on a crumbling external form of Christianity which is disappearing, but the robust body of Christ, the true believers, are growing in number all over the world. Nation after nation is experiencing the flow of God's Spirit. God is answering the prayers of Jesus. Amen. Amen Amen and amen. He must reign until... All his enemies are placed under his feet. So we have a victorious view of the end times. So you say, what well, ruling and reigning now, excuse me, haven't we been praying now for months about Syria? Excuse me, you've talked about the suicide rates. Excuse me, what about the poverty? What about the craziness all, all over the world? And you say, he's reigning now? Yes, I do. He's reigning in the midst of his enemies. But just to prove this small point, but important one, Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 27 and 28 in particular. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he is proclaiming salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, the exalted Messiah, the exalted Son of God. And he puts out a prophecy saying, you prophesied, the Old Testament prophesied, David prophesied that there was going to be one who would sit on his throne which is a picture of the kingdom of God. Verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here is an Old Testament prophecy relating to the resurrection of Messiah. And if he is going to be resurrected, it means that he's first going to be crucified. And then Peter says, we have David's tomb. And inside David's tomb are David's bones. And oh yeah, he corrupted. But God's Messiah was vindicated by the heavenly father before one worm could attack his flesh. He did not corrupt in the tomb. Being therefore a prophet, verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did flesh, his flesh see corruption. Can you see? This is saying that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning now on the typological throne of David. The kingdom has come and he is ruling from heaven now. So when he comes, he will come personally, openly, visibly, gloriously. He'll come victoriously, but he'll also come to execute justice and righteousness. All the wrongs that have ever existed, he will put them right. All the injustices. Do you know, I had to really ask God for some extra grace of sanctification when I heard of that wicked, wicked, wicked extortionist attack on the National Health Service computers so that people were suffering as a result of someone somewhere's greed. Some, somebody somewhere, their, their greed. I was so mad. Deal with them, Jesus. Yeah, he will. Not necessarily today, but he will. And you think of all the other injustices where people have literally got away not just with murder, but with genocide. Don't think they get away with it. They will not get away with it. And he will come back to execute justice. And that we rejoice in that. Isn't that what we cry out for? I remember listening to the late Christopher Hitchens, one of the most notorious atheists of our age. He's now passed away. And he would heap moral indignation over every Christian he was debating with. How can you say that God exists when all this suffering is in the world? And he was genuinely full of moral outrage as to how could a God who's supposed to exist in power and love let that happen? And what's the problem? Don't think there isn't a problem. There is a problem but there is a solution. What's the problem? An all-loving God who is all-powerful surely must judge injustice. He must deal with evil, yes? Well, he's going to. Yes, he is. That statement, that proposition is infallible in logic and infallible in scripture. An all-loving, all-powerful God must deal with injustice and evil, and he's going to do it. Thank you, Mr. Atheist. You just reminded me of that fact. But of course, the big question is, well, why does he do it straight away? If he's this big, all-loving God, why does he do it straight away? Well, first of all, he's going to come and stop the trouble in the world. He's going to have to stop the trouble in you. And he wants you to submit to him so you will do it voluntarily, not that day when all you will have is the negative side of rejection that comes as a result 
of your turning your back upon God. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, this is what it says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Pause. So what is this righteous judgment of God? Oh, I know. He's going to come and smash them. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. With the righteous judgment of God, what's it about in this context? It's about suffering. It's about believers who are suffering. And he's saying this is the righteous judgment of God. He sees your suffering and he honors your faithfulness in times of difficulty that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom. So suffering has a positive place. I have a victorious view of the end times, but I know that the world is going to go through trouble, tribulation, and pain, and destruction. I know, my friends, I know of a friend who had to flee his country with a bullet in his back because he was shot by his grandmother because he dared to become a Christian. Think about some of these refugees, what they've been going through. And God says, that's the righteous judgment because you are prepared to suffer for the kingdom and I righteously judge you as worthy of the kingdom because you put your eyes on the life that is to come and you're not living for the glory and vanity of this present evil age. Can I have an amen? amen. But it does go on to say, verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of external, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Say, whoa, hold it right there, time out. Listen, get to the end of this message, Mr. Colin, and we'll come back next week, and I want you to preach on love. I am preaching love. Do you not see it? You don't see love here? What's the key thing? When he comes again, those who've rejected him, they'll be excluded from his presence. That's love. How can that be love? I'll tell you a story, true story. Some of the details are exaggerated for the purpose of effect, but it's a true story. There was a young woman. I didn't know her personally, I only know about this. I guess she, she was a particularly beautiful, attractive young woman because she had many men who were trying to get her attention. One man in particular fell absolutely, totally in love with her. Hello, how are you? She could have opened a florist with all the flowers he sent. She could have opened another Charlie's chocolate factory with all the chocolate she got. But his attentions were unwelcome. She did not love him back. You say, shame? That's her choice, yes? It's her choice. So it, 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 he was almost stalking her to eventually she faced him down and said, leave me alone. But I love you. 
No, you don't. You love me, you wouldn't be hassling. No, I love you. Well, if you love me, leave me alone. And the woman said, amen, as we're supposed to say. No matter how much that man thought he loved her, he was not treating her in a loving way by demanding that she love him back. And there came a time when she said, if you love me, if you really love me, please never to speak to me again. And he said, okay. Now do you see? God is that loving suitor. He is pursuing you. He's trying to win you, win his, win you, trying to win your love for him. But it has to be your choice. He cannot force himself. And at the time comes, at the end of the age, when all decisions have been made, and you are saying, get out of my way, leave me alone, he will say, all right, depart from me. It'll break his heart but he will do it. Now do you get it? But it also goes on to say in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's simple gospel. Believe the testimony concerning Jesus and you will have said yes to him. And he will come for you and for all those who love him and who are longing for his appearing. So he's coming in judgment. All right, now, coming on to something else, finally. When is Jesus coming again? When is Jesus coming? You know, just go, uh, don't bother, don't Google it, got it, you know. After 2.30, so if you can Google everything, got it. But if you do Google it, you can find the ridiculous number of false predictions. Do you know I read one? Jesus is coming back in 2017. Oh, that's amazing. Is that now? Boy. Wow. I better get stuff done then. 2017. I looked at this group. They hardly believe anything biblical. They are crazy, crazy, crazy. And even if their doctrine is good in certain areas, as soon as somebody says, I know the day or the hour, they are contradicting Jesus and the truth is not in them. And some people are like, oh yeah, but I don't know exactly the day or hour, but I have been painting the toenails of Nebuchadnezzar's image. I've been counting and naming the jockeys on the four horses of the apocalypse. I've been cooking up them vials and that stuff that is pouring out from heaven. And I can tell you, somebody told me earlier this week that, oh, 1914 was the date for what? For fulfillment of what? Oh, it's the beginning of the end. No. Jesus said, but of that day, no one knows the day and the hour, not even the angels of heaven, and not even the Son of Man in his human nature knows that, of course, in his divine nature has perfect knowledge, but he doesn't know that. Why? Number one, there are no signs to alert you that Jesus is coming soon, at least no obvious open signs. All those signs that we read have already been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and with the judgment of Israel, the kingdom of God came in power in AD 70, and the effects of that were felt 
God judged the first nation. Judgment begins with the house of God. And the whole of the book of Revelation from Revelation 4 to 18 is talking about how God is going to continue to shake the nations of the earth so the gospel can prevail and God's kingdom shall emerge. So there is no sign that you can point to above other things. There are some general indications, but we'll come to that. So when is it coming? Very simply, soon. Doesn't satisfy you? Well, think of those people who heard that first 2,000 years ago. Revelation 22, 7. I'm coming soon. Revelation 22, 12. I'm coming soon. Revelation 20, verse 22, verse 20. Surely I'm coming soon. And finally, the church gets it. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So how can I say Jesus is coming soon? Well, this truth of the imminent, the near return of Jesus, is not so much a calendar thing that we can predict. It's, it's God's way of saying, get ready. Remember, we saw in Matthew 24, at the time when you don't think, everything's going on as normal, you don't think he's coming that's when he's coming. Now, there are certain things that I think need to take place first, but all of that stuff has already been fulfilled. If we're waiting for any reason, it's because he's extending his grace. If we're waiting for any reason, it's because there are some final preparations going on in heaven right now. It's coming, his coming is going to be unexpected. Therefore, we are to be ready at all times. So what about the signs? I've mentioned earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars. All these were fulfilled in the first century. All these were fulfilled in Jesus' time. And he said, this generation shall not pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. So that's him. And from that time, after the fall of the nation of Israel and judgment on the nation of Israel, by the way, God will bring them back in again. Don't you worry. That will be one of the major signs. From that time to this, the gospel and the kingdom is ongoing. We can talk about the midnight cry. If you don't know about that, get RT's messages on it. The midnight cry is when the sleeping church will wake up and God will use that, that end time group of people. It could be us. It could be today. And if we are ready and we have oil, we will be used of God in the end time revival that will bring to conclusion and consummation God's program of evangelization of the whole world. It will happen. It will happen. Not everybody's going to be saved, but it will happen. If there's going to be a fullness of Israel, in other words, the nation is going to turn pretty well as a nation to God. And it goes on to say there's a fullness of the Gentiles, which means the Gentile nations are also going to turn to God. This is a victorious, victorious eschatology. It's not eschatology, it's victorious. We're not going to escape the tribulations, the trials, the sufferings, the martyrdoms, we're not going to escape that. There are going to be seasons where there's going to be relative peace, seasons when we're going to say all hell is breaking loose, but it will be God pouring out from heaven his judgments over the nations, shaking every kingdom that can be shaken so that the kingdom which we trust in, the kingdom which cannot be shaken, will remain. That's what's happening. So, what does his second coming mean to us? Be ready. Be ready. He doesn't give us an Uber program. I love Uber. And all the other programs 
that help you applications get taxis. It's so wonderful. Da 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 da. Uber, what do you want? Uber, 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 cheap. Uber, costly. Big Uber, fat Uber, fast Uber, 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 Uber. How much luggage? There. Hello. I'm on my way. Beep. And you see sat nav. Say, why are you going that way? Turn around. This one. Right the way. And you're there. You're there. Sometimes you click it. Two minutes. Ha ha ha. Then it changes. Ten minutes. But you kind of know. But even in that scenario, I am ready. I'm not sitting upstairs waiting to brush my teeth. Oh, the taxi's here, let's go. No, I'm there, I'm ready, bad's packed, ready to go. That's the picture. How much you feel you can trace the proximity of the coming of Jesus is up to you. Don't go overboard on it, but you are to live expectedly with your spiritual bags packed, ready to go. And in the meantime, not only are we ready and expectant, looking for his coming, we are keeping the faith, fighting the fight, being faithful in doctrine and life. Is anything I've tried to do in this church over the last few years is to say, please, people, understand the importance of the Bible. That's why I bring Dr. R.T. Kendall five, six months every year so he can teach you and teach you and teach you. I don't understand why anybody would miss the Friday night stuff that he does. It's amazing. Teach you, teach you doctrine, understanding, because out of doctrine comes life. Out of understanding comes the choices that you make to live accordingly. Doctrine, life, growth and maturity, building the community of God's people, influencing your society for Christ. I wrote those down. I wasn't trying to recapitulate and just to list again the vision for 2020. It just kills in me. And I want to say, you need to know this. You need to know I am not somebody who runs around with heaps of pride and lots of confidence in self. Not at all. You speak to the people who know me. Therefore, there isn't a hint of pride in this, but I am so happy that God has given us not just ideas, but he's given us strategies and structures and a, a real intentionality about living in this way so that we are ready for when Jesus comes. And when he comes, it won't be empty-handed. We'll have many souls to show him because we've been about the Father's business, going, sowing, gathering, reaping, discipling, maturing, sending. This is the work of the kingdom. That's how you prepare. All the while, spreading the good news, preaching the gospel, making disciples. And we join in. Revelation 22, verse 17 with the voice of the Spirit, who inspires us to say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. We issue the invitation. Without price, it's free. Freely available. And then for us more personally, 1 John 3, 2 to 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure.